The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. If you have your Bible, turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke 19, beginning in verse 28. Luke 19, 28 to 44, we'll uh, focus on this morning. And really, here's the thing. In this Easter season, this Easter week, uh, really today and uh, next weekend and the week after, actually, we're going to hone in on Luke's account of these events. You know, it really helps us for continuity's sake. We looked at Luke's account during the Christmas season. And so during a ministry year, we like to just stick to a gospel as we uh, follow that gospel writer's emphases through the events here. And so, uh, so we're going to stay here in Luke 19. And, and uh, this weekend will be, or the following weekend will be in Luke as well. But this uh, entire ministry, or even as we zoom out, what have we uh, been anchored in? What attribute of God have we been anchored in through it all? The greatness of God. And lately we've been in, in Colossians and the greatness of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so now at Easter, we zero in on the greatest week and the greatest uh, uh, events in Jesus' life. And here's the thing as we get into Luke. Luke goes to great lengths, just like every gospel writer actually, but he goes to great lengths to convey that Jesus is in control of every event leading up to his death. He was not the victim of circumstances. He was not the unwilling martyr. He was the sovereign king in charge. He was the fulfillment of numerous Old Testament prophecies that he knew he was there to fulfill. And he was a king unlike any other to have authority in human history. And we may have some angst in our own heart this morning towards uh, those earthly kings, earthly rulers, governing authorities that God has put in us, those who lead and have this authority. But here's the bottom line uh, for us in our text this morning and for this passage as we think of Jesus' triumphal entry, it is this, make no mistake, Jesus is the great king. Now, that may be a settled resolution in your heart this morning already, and so I pray that you would be recaptured with how profound that is. Or maybe you're questioning that this morning. I pray that as we come to this text here, God will show you that there will be no doubt, you will have no mistakes, that Jesus is the great King. And so come to your text now. I want to read the account of his earthly coronation his entrance into Jerusalem that begins the events of the Holy Week. Listen, follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read it now. And when he, that is Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just, or who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is God's word for God's people. Would you pray with me just for a second here? God in heaven, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. It's our prayer every, every time we come to your word, but specifically now, let us see Christ as king. I pray in his name. It's a good passage of scripture, is it not? A passage uh, full of the range of emotions. A passage like many passages that Luke has gone, he's, he has these transition statements that, uh, that, that connect all of the, uh, uh, of the stories. He's leading us somewhere. And so as you look at, at the text in verse 28, he says, And when he had said these things, Jesus, when he had said, he, uh, he's, he's referring back to the context. He's connecting us there where Jesus had been in Jericho, coming from the east now into Jerusalem. And he's been teaching a parable really at the, with, at the, the, the bottom line of that, that God expects multiplication and risk in the life of his believers. And go read it. That's a message for another time. If I was preaching through Luke, you'd know that. But I think it's very important for us this morning, even as Jesus is entering into his life, he teaches these things. God expects from his believers a life of multiplication and risk using the parable of the business owner giving, having 10 servants, giving them each one uh, minya and instructing them to go and be faithful. The ones who are fruitful, he blesses them and gives them more. And the ones who are fearful, he condemns them and casts them out. One of his last parables of his teaching ministry, before he completes his mission, he is the king, he is the one that is leaving, and now he is going towards Jerusalem to be exalted as king. He is the great king. But here's what we begin to learn as we uh, take the text apart here, as we, as we see his triumphal entry. Here's the first thing that we learn. Jesus is the sovereign king that we joyfully serve. If we're taking notes, write that down here. It's very important for us as the great king. He is the sovereign king that we joyfully serve. And as I just said, he's entering into Jerusalem from the east, and he passes through these two small villages, Bethphage and Bethany, as he's on foot with his disciples, and he's making his way, and he stops there at the Mount of Olives. Now, some of you know this, if, if not, and back in 2006, I got to spend some time in uh, Israel and was there at the, in Jerusalem, and you can come to the Mount of Olives. It's obviously still there today, and it's a, it, it's, it's, as you come upon it, it has a beautiful view of the city. Much like if you go to Fisher Park here in town on the east side of town and you can look down upon as you get behind like that one big pavilion and you can see New Braunfels spread before you. It's the same way in the Mount of Olives. The Kidron Valley is down uh, uh, below it. And now you have the Temple Mount there with the big gold dome and uh, a bustling city. And actually on the Mount of Olives, the majority of it now is, is actually it's a, it's a, a graveyard, cemetery with uh, uh, above-ground sarcophaguses there as the Jewish people are, uh, you know, have the right intent, but they miss the Messiah. They want to be there when the Messiah comes and touches down on Mount of Olives, which 
happens even here, but now you walk through a cemetery. You can look down upon it. It is here that Jesus is on. He's coming to the, to, uh, the city. He'll later in a few days return to the base of the Mount of Olives at the Garden of Gethsemane where he will be betrayed. He'll lead his disciples to pray there. He'll be arrested and betrayed there. And here, though, as he's entering in, he comes to these cities. He's at the Mount of Olives, and he sends two unnamed disciples with some specific instructions, right? And they play out exactly as, they, as he instructs. I, I love this text here. It's included in, in the other Gospels as well, just for how precise it is. Hey, go, you're going to enter the city. You're going to find a, a, a young colt. Maybe it's never been, had anybody ride on it. Maybe it's carried some you know, produce or other things as the owner is trying to break it into the sights and the sounds of the city and the weight of things on its back. But go and find this and just tell them, hey, the Lord has need of it. Now, just take a step back there. Imagine if you're the owner of that donkey. Because you're the one who's doing all that. You, this is a donkey that you're trying to take care of, and it's here now. It's in the city, and two guys that you don't know are coming and untying it. Of course, it's like, uh, excuse me, what are you doing? Right? Because somebody's just approaching your car and opening up the door and like, uh, what? Well, the Lord has need of it. Oh, okay. We're not, there's no objections recorded. There's no uh, uh, requests for remuneration. There's, there's nothing. He's just, uh, they take it and everything happens. Uh, just like, imagine, imagine if that like happened to, for us as a church, like as we look for property to build on one day, you know, as our church grows and it's like, oh, well, there's, you know, 10 acres right over there. Let's just go and start building on it. And if the owner of the property comes up and says, uh, excuse me, what are you doing? It's like, oh, the Lord has need of it. We need to build a church on Oh, okay. But what's the significance of a text like this? Why the details? Why the specifics? Well, it's to show us that everything is going exactly according to plan. Jesus knows exactly why he has come. He knows exactly what is going on. He knows the Old Testament prophecies. He was there as these things were being sprinkled throughout the uh, Israel of the Old Testament through the prophets. He knew that, uh, that it was prophesied in Zechariah 9.9 that the king would enter on a donkey on a colt. See, here it is on the screen, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. What will they do in a few verses from now? Exactly that. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? These details are recorded for us so we wouldn't miss that this is the long-awaited sovereign king and messiah. Do you see the providence of the king? Do you see the power of the king? He, it's happening exactly as he says because he is orchestrating it for us. And so what, what, what then does this teach us here? Is, it, is, is we see his sovereignty, what is it? So, well, if the king asks, we give it. When the king makes a request, we give to him. He is the king. We are his servants. The sovereignty and control of the king should then cause us to trust him completely. If he is in control of all the details of the events, then our service, when he asks us, we can be fully trusted that he will not lead us astray or he won't lead us into something beyond his control. He's calling us to walk in faith, even to the simple things of going to find this donkey 
even beyond the absurdities that of our mind that think, well, how could this even happen? We know he can be trusted. He can ask because it all belongs to him. What did we see several weeks ago in Colossians 1? As we've been working our way through that, Colossians 1.16, all things, speaking of Jesus, were created through him and for him. See, the divine purposes of this donkey being born on the earth, besides being a servant of its master and, and working to, you know, for his own transportation or to help him in his uh, commerce or whatever, this donkey was created to carry the king into the city. All things created through him and for him. And this includes our own time, talent, treasures, our own possessions. And this is important for us to understand it all belongs to the Lord because sometimes I think we can get this backwards in our minds. We think we are sovereign over this. this I'm sorry, I'm in the one in control of my time, of my talent, of my possessions, and I'll, I'll serve or I'll use them so that my needs are met. I'll use them so that I can feel good or receive something in return. Instead, biblical minds all this belongs to the lord he is the king he is the one sovereign over i'm just the steward of it even now and when he asks it all belongs to him and so where the rubber meets the road as christ is the sovereign king the one in control whom we joyfully serve just as these two unnamed servants serve uh, disciples serve uh, christ in this way even for us we then ask well uh, where does jesus church have need how can I joyfully serve the king? What in the ways that God has gifted me or, or entrusted me with his resources, how can I come alongside? How can I use them and be used of the Lord? The Lord has need of it. And see, it's this heart attitude within us that lifts up Christ, that coronates him as the king, as the Lord of our life, of our possessions. Just as the disciples in verse 35, as they come, as they bring Jesus to it, they put their coats on it, submitting to his authority. They set Jesus on the donkey. And as they do, as they serve Christ and they set him there, as they exalt him, then the worship begins to arise. See, because there's a second thing here. Not only is Jesus the sovereign king that we joyfully serve, the text also teaches that Jesus is the promised king that we unashamedly worship. He's the promised king that we unashamedly worship. We, we saw already in Zechariah 9 these details of the promised king that would come. And, and even here in these next verses, we will begin to see from Psalm 118. See, it's in the submissive worship in verse 36, right? that they are throwing their coats on, kind of like rolling out the red carpet. Right? But here in verse 36, as he rides along, they spread their cloaks on the road, a sign, a, a symbol, a demonstrated thing, as they lay their coats on, as they are placing themselves under the feet, under the authority of King Jesus. It's a whole multitude here. Not only are they doing it, look at how the text says it. They're there, they're throwing it down. He's drawing near, and a whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with quiet voices, nodding in approval for all the mighty works they had seen. What does it say? With a loud voice. It's a whole multitude of people getting loud and lively before the Lord, singing a lyric straight out of Scripture from Psalm 118, 26. There, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Read Psalm 118 this week, and you'll begin to see some of these uh, pictures of what is happening throughout uh, the, 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 the Easter week. 
There's some great psalms to add to your reading. Psalm 22 and Psalm 118 this week, just even to see some of the glimpses of what is happening through Christ's crucifixion and is entering here. But they're singing, they're getting loud and lively. And, and I love this about the, the scriptures. Anytime Christ is at the center, even in the, you, when you read Revelation, and Revelation 4 and 5 in particular, is to get the, like this glimpse, like the doors open into the heavenly throne room where Christ is. And man, they are loud and lively in their worship of Christ. They're singing to uh, him, about him, and they are making sure their voice is heard, even if it's off key. Although in heaven, I'm sure we'll all be singing on key and all that. But they're singing these lyrics straight out of Psalm 118. There's additional evidence that everything is going according to plan. Jesus is receiving the adoration due to him. See, it is the king that is the only one worthy to be worshipped. And, and as John pointed out here from the text, if, and if we don't, if we're silent, then creation itself will, will not just cry out, but scream out in agony. See, and the Pharisees get grumpy about it. The, the disciples are praising him as the king, and the, and the Pharisees, they get grumpy about this worship, don't they? Now, if you're unfamiliar, who's a Pharisee? They're the religious elite of the day. The ones who were very proud of their understanding of the scriptures that had a lot of outward uh, 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 religious activity in their life, but totally missed that the king was right there. They had ultimately rejected Jesus as king over and over and over to this point. And you know, the thing is, is they were right to, reject, uh, right to acknowledge that this kind of adoration is fit only for a king. That's why they're saying, no, rebuke your disciples. This is an adoration only appropriate for royalty, for the king. You need to quiet them down, Jesus, because they had rejected him. But Jesus is like, no, of course I'm not going to, because I am the king. I, no, I'm not, if, if they are silent, the very stones will cry out. He can't rebuke them because he deserves it. Even if they did not acknowledge it as the Pharisees, the stones would have to. Why? Because all of creation sings the praises of its creator. Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Revelation 4, again, Worthy are you, O Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. In Romans 8, it describes their, the current condition and eager expectation of creation now, groaning, crying out, waiting for the King to come. Even now, creation waits. Creation waits but they knew, even then, what was happening, who this was. It was their promised king, their creator, the redeemer, the one bearing salvation, the one who will liberate. This is the promised king, the one who liberates. This is why we start each week doing what we're doing right now. First day of the week, our first hours, giving the Lord our first and best all the time, our unashamed worship. He's the promised king who has come and will come again just as these things happen. This gives us hope for the Lord's return when he will come and rule and reign. That's why we live each day as an act of worship, giving to God the best of our time and talent and treasure, where he gets our best thoughts, he gets our best service. He is on our minds, you know, as, uh, as we grow in our walk. Why? Because he is the king who is the Lord of our life, and he is the savior who has liberated us.
See, this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the king who had come. God who had left his throne, put on human flesh. God's great son who came and lived the life that we could not live and died the death, is going to die that death in these events here in just a few days, the death that we deserved to die. Because our sin had separated us from God. We were dead in it, with no way to liberate ourselves. And now here comes the king, humble, salvation in his hands, mounted on a donkey. He deserves our best. We trust in him. As we turn from our sin, as we turn from our own lordship of having uh, uh, this view of our life that we are the king of our own uh, uh, actions and destiny. I have to say we're irresponsible. Where we bow before Christ as our king, trusting that his death on the cross was the right payment for our sin. Walking then in newness of life, walking each day in praise and adoration to the king. See, this is where he's come. This is the gospel. This is the good news that we celebrate today. The good news that you can respond to even now as you submit yourself to Christ. See, he's the promised king whom we worship with all of our life. And the, the crazy part is he's riding here towards victory along a very unusual path, is he not? See, he's, he's writing, in, and I don't mean that necessarily specifically, although there are some specific details, but symbolically here, he's writing towards victory along a very unusual path. So here's the last point. Jesus is the rejected king that we humbly exalt. The rejected king that we humbly exalt. So picture it here. He's coming in. The, the streets are loud and lively. You know, you've maybe been in some parades when a, 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 a figure comes down. When uh, years ago I was in, in uh, Italy and I was there at Vatican City and his, uh, Pope John Paul II was, was riding around in his little Pope mobile that was like bulletproof and all that. Through, they, were, they were canonizing these uh, like Spanish saints or something. I was there as a, a tourist and people were just falling down in adoration, worshiping this it is a sight to behold. And I just picture that. It's like, was this kind of like what it was with Christ? As he's coming in, in all the joy and all the exaltation, the loud and lively worship along the streets as he is going along on the donkey and he draws near. You can picture it. Admits the cheers. He tops the ridge. He sees the city there in verse 41. And he weeps. Jesus is marching away. There's no like pretentious smiles. There's no royal waves like, you know, the homecoming king and all that, you know, however you do that. Weeps. Why? Look what verse 42 says. He weeps because they're blind to his salvation. Would that you, even you, speaking collectively of Jerusalem, of Israel, the center of, of Jewish culture and religion, would that you, even you, had known on this day that things that make for peace, he is bringing salvation. It brings peace with God and peace with one another. The shalom, but now they're hidden from your eyes. The king has arrived with salvation in his hand, and they cannot see it. Days later, this rejoicing turns to rejection. It happens quick. 
He knows it. He weeps over it. He weeps, secondly, because judgment awaits. Judgment awaits. Look at in verse 43 and 44. Like this, what does that describe? It's like a battle siege. It's a war. See, 40 years after this, the Roman army would destroy the city. They would destroy the temple. These things would be fulfilled just a few decades after these events. They were so focused on the earthly things here. The city of Jerusalem, God's people here, they were so focused on liberation that the king would come and liberate them from the Roman government that they right there and they missed the eternal things. Namely, that the king had to be rejected and die for them to be saved. They wanted freedom from this like earthly oppression and God's saying, I've come with some bigger plans. But you know what? Even this rejection was all according to plan. See, this is where it gets mind-boggling. This is where it's, where it's it, it, it maybe uh, the, the road to victory is along an unusual path that we might think. See, look at here at Psalm 118 on the, on the screen. Just read the first few verses. It's what they're quoting in, in verse 38 here. But the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Who's the stone here? Christ. It's Christ. He's the stone, the one upon which everything else is built. The cornerstone in a building was the one that they would set to make sure it was perfectly level, and then everything else would get built around it. So in builders in those days, the stonemasons, they would find the right one, everything, they say, this is the one, and then they would build the house around it. And it, the, using that imagery here, it's like, here's Christ, here's the stone, like, mm, nope, not good enough. They reject it. And yet it is that very stone that becomes the cornerstone for our faith, which our faith is built on in everything else. And look at the next verse. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day, the day that we are coming to here, the day of Christ's rejection, his ultimate crucifixion on Good Friday. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And we use that sometimes in, in the morning, right? Maybe as you're trying to like, uh, you know, muster up some joy in your life. This is the day. God has given me this day. It's the day he's made. Let me rejoice and be glad in it, right? Not necessarily a wrong application because it is a day that the Lord has made, but it is speaking of a very specific day that God has made, a marvelous day that we would never plan. Ultimately, the day that the King of Kings would be rejected by the very ones that he created, had revealed himself to through his word, had been leading to this day, and they reject him. But see, in the Lord's economy, the way to exaltation is through rejection. Mind-boggling, isn't it? Marvelous to our eyes. But it's not entirely unlikely. It happened in 1 Samuel 8, foreshadowed there. As Israel would reject God as their king and demand a king like the nations. Even then, the pathway to exaltation is through rejection. It's not through power. It's not through conquering with a massive military. It's not through buying out a, a, the competitor or another business with millions of dollars. No, though all of these things were at his disposal, all knowledge, all power, all resources at Jesus' disposal and at, it, at his betrayal in, Ju in John chapter 18, I think is the last glimpse where he says, I'm the one in control here. I have power. I could get out of this. But no, Jesus stuns them all by taking the humble route. 
Though all of this is at his disposal, even still, he draws near to the city, and what does he do? He weeps. See, hardness of heart is a grievous thing, is it not? Many of us in here know the family and friends who are hard towards the Lord or the things of the Lord. The ones we would long to be sitting next to us this morning or next week or to have just a spiritual conversation with. It's easy to get mad in, in, in those moments, isn't it? It's easy to get impatient with them and with the Lord. It's easy to get argumentative force and try to coerce spiritual conversations or a confession of faith and really like Christ the one who can change a heart he weeps the hardness of heart should cause us to weep it should lead us to pray and ask God to do what only he can do even if we have to ask him over and over and over and over and over and over again until we have no more breath it's easy in moments like these to get focused on the earthly things, like in Colossians 3, right? It's easy to get focused in, like, well, uh, this would make my life a lot easier. This would make my life a lot more comfortable. This would make my life, you know, what, whatever. Yet here it is, Christ setting his mind on things above. He has a heavenly mission, seeking the things that are above. He knows why he's here. He has eternal purposes uh, at hand. So what do we to do? In these moments, just like we learned in Colossians 3, we seek and set. Seeking the things above. Okay, God, it's in your hands. I don't know why you're not doing it. I don't know why this is, but I'm, I'm seeking you. I'm trusting in your timing. Give me greater compassion. Give me greater pity as we wait for you to do the work in, your, in this person's life. Even as we do that, we humbly exalt him as the king, acknowledging that it is all power, all authority, and even as we do that, we can thank the Lord as we come here because he knows these things. He knows he's going to be rejected. He knows the brutal death that he is about to uh, uh, face. And we can, with thankful hearts, praise him, humbly exalt him that he didn't chicken out or turn around. He could have come upon the city and be like, yeah, I know what's going to happen here. It ain't worth it. It's going to hurt. Deuces. Figure it out yourself. He doesn't. He doesn't. He goes mindset, purposes of God, to the cross before him, weeping, knowing what will happen, continuing his work, and we can be thankful that his work still continues. His work doesn't, doesn't stop. He doesn't go. His death it doesn't get the last word, but he continues on. And, and as we know, he'll rise again. He will, uh, he will then continue to, uh, for a few uh, weeks, teach his disciples. And then as he leaves, he tells us, hey, I'm going to go with you in the mission. As you tell people about what is happening here, that Christ is the great king, that I am the uh, great savior. He goes with us in that mission. Go, therefore, and make disciples baptizing them and teaching them all that I have commanded you. And guess what? Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, Jesus goes with us in the mission. He, even knowing these things, the difficulty that we'll face, he goes with us, advancing his kingdom across the globe as he sits at the right hand of the Father, even now. And you know what? These truths here, because Jesus is the great king, even as we have this opportunity this morning, that's why we're so committed to church planting. 
Because we know that we live in a world where so many are hardened to the things of the Lord, going about their uh, own life as, uh, as if they are the king or queen of their life. And this isn't unique to Jesus. In, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus, he comes, he sees the crowd, and he has compassion, pity, seeing that they are like sheep without a shepherd, that they are harassed and helpless. We see the crowds, we weep with compassion, we see people, and we get to work with the Lord. See, this is what he's called us to do. This is what he's, he's leading us to do. Even as, we, as he, we see him as the rejected king, we humbly exalt him, we unashamedly worship him, we joyfully serve him because he is the great, the good and gracious king. And that's why we plant churches, why we do what we do. We have a special day this morning to commission those under King Jesus, under King Jesus, the people of living hope, people who've responded to Christ as their king, as their savior. Commission them to go and to continue this work as another gospel outpost, proclaiming these same things, telling everyone that, hey, there is a living hope. You want to know why? Because Jesus is the great king. This is who we remember today. This is who we worship. And this is what we get to do this morning. So-